Welcome to Tales from the Edge, the podcast series of dangerous, terrifying, and even life-threatening events that are sure to leave a man scared to death. The reader of these tales, John Burnett, has a CV that reads like an adventure thriller. He has advised a president of the United States. He was head writer of a CBS soap opera. He has written frequently for the New York Times. And on a more adventurous note, he was captain of a fishing boat in Alaska, has sailed single-handedly across oceans, and served as a relief worker for the United Nations. He has also been attacked by pirates in the South China Sea and lived through a face-off with a child soldier holding a loaded gun in Somalia. He has also published a few books, just to name a few career highlights. I think this man has pissed himself in fear more times than I've had breakfast. This episode takes us to Alaska. Well, I'll get a little uh, background here. You know, I'd always wondered when I was young about uh, what it would be like to live in the wild and survive the wilderness. Um, to survive the wilderness alone, I mean really alone. Others have tried it and some haven't survived. And uh, it's not just because of the unexpected hardships of the wilderness, but um, because they were totally totally alone, and it was the total lack of um, contact with others that apparently got to him. After all, solitary confinement is considered the cruelest of punishments. We often see ourselves through the eyes of uh, others, but, you know, what if we were to be the only one um, to exist in our own minds? Um, to the exclusion of all others, what would we find when we live alone? Um, how could we relate to nobody but ourselves? And um, I wondered whether I'd be able to stand myself, not just for a day or two, but uh, for a few months. How would uh, total isolation affect me? Um, I even wondered whether I'd become psychotic. And what about that silence, the noiseless shuffle of the only living thing on earth that was me. I had the excuse to find out. It was a subsidized experiment, you might call it. A publisher had accepted my proposal for a novel, a story in part that was based on Alaska. Um, I was no newcomer to the state, but I had never lived in the bush. It uh, was something that was out there to the north, mysterious and a little frightening. The wilderness and the challenge taunted me. I couldn't very well write about the life in the bush, of course, unless I experienced it. But uh, in the winter and alone? So I rented a one-room log house from a trapper that I met in a bar in Fairbanks. And it's a kind of a hard scrabble town of government workers, roughnecks, homesteaders, trappers, bush pilots, and other proud castaways, and I was waiting for the weather to break. The deal was that in addition to a couple hundred bucks, I'd patch the roof and extend the stovepipe chimney and replace some chinking between the logs and the walls. The 
old fella got his cabin fixed and I had a secluded place to write. I headed into the interior, not totally confident I could handle such isolation. And uh, one terrifying night I came to realize how alone and vulnerable I really was. And um, it was uh, uh, a uh, situation that uh, when I think back about it, uh, still uh, makes my, uh, my hair curl. I didn't go unprepared. Before the first snow, I had uh, stocked a food cache and a permafrost under the floor with a winter's worth of uh, provisions, meats and root vegetables and cans of food and dozens of jugs of wine and jams from blueberries and cloud cloudberries that I'd collected and preserved. So with a chainsaw, an axe I had cut, split, and stacked wood against the side of the cabin that was two feet as high as the roof. That was an unremarkable little cabin, um, perched on a narrow ridge above a creek about under a wall of some uh, unnamed mountain. It was a place that could be discovered only by accident. It was two days away by uh, snowshoe and following the little creek and down the valley and across to another narrow, a very narrow um, trail that led to the logging road and finally to the a paved road and then to hitchhike. It um, was, a, was a, either dark and depressing or cozy and secure, a confining prison or protective room. The uh, round logs of the walls were often dusty and streaked with termite powder, and the two windows had been permanently boarded up. Um, traps were hung by chains from spaced walls, randomly spaced walls, uh, pounded into the um, pounded into uh, the sides of the building, and there are traps for snowshoe hare and beaver and lynx, and there's one large bear trap. And a jury-rigged 55-gallon drum provided the heat, and it served as a stove, and there was no running water. Uh, when the creek finally froze, I had to chop out the ice and haul it back inside the cabin and with a bucket. There's no electricity. Um, there were a couple of kerosene lanterns that uh, gave me enough light to type the manuscript with an ancient portable typewriter I'd found in town. A battered uh, white enameled chamber pot was stationed under the bunk for nights that were too cold to get out of bed. And when bearable, which was not often, I used the toilet outside. It was an outhouse over a deep hole in the ground. and. Um, I flushed it uh, with a cupful of lime. Um, if I didn't bring in the toilet seat uh, after I sat on it, I figured I'd be uh, wearing the frozen seat until spring. I should mention about the, uh, the food cache that I, I uh, spoke of earlier. Um, the food cache was uh, um, buried in a hole in the permafrost. The permafrost was uh, is used up there for uh, refrigeration. In fact, uh, in the north, very far north, uh, the uh, natives um, store their uh, uh, whale, whale meat and um, seal meat and caribou uh, down in the hole buried in the permafrost. Um, 
unfortunately, um, with the global warming, uh, the climate change, uh, there's uh, very little permafrost up there left. And I imagine the hole in the ground under my cabin, where I st stock my food, is probably nothing but uh, a, uh, a mud hole. Um, I did have a gun. Uh, it was a Winchester shotgun. And it was propped against the wall next to the, my bunk. And uh, of course, I never expected uh, to need it. Um, there was nothing out there in the dead of winter that I could hunt. Uh, there was ptarmigan, uh, hare, and uh, other game, but um, they're well buried out of the weather in the winter. Um, the gun was just there, I guess, uh, more as a, um, a security blanket, just standing more as an orna ornament than uh, really an effective weapon. It had been uh, the top of the line of, a, of American shotguns. It was a real beauty. I had a warm, it had a warm polished walnut stock, and the bluing had faded a bit, but um, it's, and its once classic shape was uh, no longer really recognizable. Um, I was advised in Fairbanks, before I headed out into the bush, that uh, to saw off the barrel of the shotgun and leave a, a one-inch long stub that uh, was the uh, business end of, uh, of the gun. Um, the reason is that uh, you would say it was loaded for bear, literally. It, had a, it was a six-cartridge uh, pump-action gun. The first two of the cartridges were solid slugs, and that was designed to penetrate a bear's breastplate. The next two double-aught buck were for its face, if it hadn't been stopped by the slugs. And the last, birdshot, uh, to, uh, well, they were to be used, it was said, uh, on yourself when uh, there was no escape and no hope from the bear. It had been my mother's gun, and I remember her saying, uh, oh, I suppose so, dear, I haven't used it since the 50s. And she had said uh, that uh, um, she would uh, go out and, uh, in New England and uh, would... Uh, that uh, my father and she would go out and come back with uh, many birds, and um, she called it uh, Old Chekhov, and the, the gun over the mantle in the first chapter. Of course, dear, she said, don't refer to it unless you intend to use it. I didn't realize how uh, prescient that, uh, that would be. My only contact with the outside world was a uh, once-a-week broadcast from a little battery-operated uh, radio that sometimes picked up the Fairbanks station when conditions were right. I wasn't interested in the news. Anything that happened on the outside was irrelevant. And um, I wasn't uh, much interested in the weather, for it didn't vary very much. Generally, it was minus 25 degrees to 30 degrees, and it was dark and a chance of ice fog. But the radio did remind me that I was not the only one left on the, on the planet. It was by radio uh, that those on the outside could, uh, in the bush could uh, get in touch via the bush telegraph. Um, us troglodytes uh, enisled in the interior, trappers, miners, hermits, and the one lone uh, paperback writer, um, a Jack London wannabe. That one-way contact with the oddballs by radio in the heart of the Alaskan wilderness uh, didn't bring uh, glad tidings, 
to uh, many of the, uh, uh, all those uh, um, adventurers that were out in the bush. Um, but also, it was also good uh, contact for, uh, for the loved ones back home. But uh, for me, it was uh, the only time I'd ever heard anything uh, uh, was, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself, actually, because um, no one really knew uh, on the outside uh, where I really was. And um, I never really told anybody, except for the uh, old man that I bought the, uh, I rented the cabin from. I didn't intend to really get to be disturbed at all. But uh, one day I uh, did hear um, the announcer say to John out there in Monument Creek, John, if you're listening, this is from Marsha in Charleston. She says, oh boy, she says, I haven't heard from you in weeks. I have a chance to sell the boat and I'm going to do it unless I hear otherwise. The announcer said that, uh, gratuitously, I guess you better get the hell back there, Jono, if you ever want to see your boat again. And I guess that goes for Marsha too. Chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> I turned off the radio, sat in the rocking chair and listening and, uh, to the, to the uh, silence in the side of the cabin and staring at the lamplight, um, just stunned my, my precious boat. But this was another life. So get on with it. I'd turn on the radio now for the next time, only one more time. There were other noises of sorts uh, other than the radio, and uh, some were even within my own imagination. At times I heard someone or something rustling outside. Um, when you're alone, the fear is amplified a hundredfold, like the childhood fear of the dark. One conjures up the very worst. Nothing was out there, and the only sounds were the crackling of wood and the oil drum and uh, the sudden whoosh of uh, snow as it slid off the tin roof. And of course, the bustle of my own movement, banging and bumping and scraping and farting and breathing and even the occasional rumble of a earth tremor as it rolled down the drainage. Self-canceling, uh, that's what I'd call it. It was self-canceling, these sounds, uh, blended with the quiet because the sounds became silence itself. Um, pretty soon there was uh, no noticeable noise at all. Weeks of uh, isolation uh, began to have a very strange and creepy effect on my stability. Well, I'm not one to talk to myself. Uh, the thoughts that rattle around in my head are, are voices enough. There were a few new sounds that demanded some attention. Some weeks after getting settled, an ancient tone, uh, tone I, had, uh, I had known as a child rolled around in my head, spinning itself over and over again, uh, a stuck record, and there was no damn way of turning it off. I tried to ignore it, I tried to overwrite it, I talked to myself, I sang aloud, even, a, even those awful Christmas carols, but no chance, I couldn't escape it for Always underneath my own efforts was this awful song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, Take Me Out to the Crowd, Buy Me Some Peanuts and Cracker Jacks, I Don't Care If I Never Get Back, Oh, Take Me Out, so on. But I didn't give in, and I wouldn't hum it, 
and I wouldn't whistle it, and I sure in hell wouldn't sing it, but there it was over and over. When I wrote, when I read, when I tried to think, the stupid, maddening, childish ditty so clear bounced through my head without end, and I had no control over it, and I could not switch it off. Actually, I read recently that uh, a repetitive tune that sp spins over and over again in your head is a sign of developing schizophrenia. <laughs> well, that may prove true. So the tune uh, finally faded uh, a week or so later, and hallelujah, I was free. But then after a few days of relative silence, it was replaced by even stranger noises, unidentified male voices speaking in heavily accented English, New Yorkers, Southerners, German, Frenchmen, a cacophony of foreign babble, so unexpected and so clear, my, could have, my friends could have been sitting beside me, chatting in whatever accent they chose while we knocked back another shot of tequila. But those voices weren't too irritating. They were entertaining, actually, and they remained uh, companions for about a week or so. But at last, uh, the voices wearied of, wearied of my own companionship, and they left me with only myself to relate to. But that merciful silence, a real dead silence, revealed to me that there was no one in the world but me. But, maybe not, I hear a motor, a bush plane flying up the valley. In these conditions, can't be. Can't be an airplane. The sound of a low oscillating hum never seems to vary. A new settler with a generator up, uh, up the creek? I think it might be, I hope. I fear it in January. Not likely. But I strapped on my snowshoes and scuffed up the frozen creek to higher ground toward the engine, but I, the sound never got any closer. And giving up, I returned to the cabin, disappointed and pleased. Disappointed that I couldn't solve the mystery, and pleased that whoever was out there was far enough away that my solitude would not be disturbed. I wouldn't have to see them, I wouldn't have to meet them, and I wouldn't have to talk to them. Uh, the sure sign of what is known up there is going bushy. Misanthropy starts in such places. Months after I freed myself from exile, back in the lower 48, the source of the mysterious motor was revealed. A psychologist from Johns Hopkins University, who specialized in the effects of isolation, told me that she was quite convinced I had been so long without sound, without real verbal input and output that the motor I had heard was the sound in my ears of blood rushing through my head. A warning, an indication, she said, of uh, possible psychosomatic deterioration. Apparently, there really is no such thing as total silence. Well, in spite of these three months of auditory hell, I reached the final moment and wrote the end in my manuscript and whipped it out of the typewriter. 400 double-spaced typewritten pages. I never thought I was capable of such discipline. I proudly hefted the heavy manuscript, weighted approvingly from one hand to the other, placed it gently on the table as a mother might lovingly place her newborn baby, walked around it, I stared at it, I spoke to it, I imagined the fine day it would be published 
and all the world would rave and acclaim this little paperback novel as a work of literary genius. I had arrived at that point where there could be nothing more. After knocking back a fair amount of tequila, I removed my heavy clothes and wearing only a gray cotton union suit with buttons missing from the ass flap, I slipped on my felt-lined boots and a pair of gloves and dragged the rocking chair out into the frigid Alaskan night. Finishing 100,000 words and having lived what I thought was the perfect full life, I knew that this was a good time. It's a good time as any. The best time, in fact. The, nine, the time of my choosing. I couldn't expect anything ahead that could be any better than this. It was reason enough now to freeze to death. I had heard that freezing to death was a good way to go. Out there in the clear, motionless, near 24-hour night, the, night from, the light from the stars illuminated the landscape with the shadowy pall of a false dawn. Slightly drunk, I sat back, facing the dark brilliance of the snow. The cold wrapped my body like a sheath, so cold that it was nearly warm. I held on to, the, to my consciousness because I wanted to live this. I wanted to live this precious process. Do me, get me. I welcomed the painful needles of cold that were piercing my body and began to enjoy the whole thing. Suddenly, a wave of green light shot across the sky, and then another, followed by a, a curl of white and pink. Ribbons of color began to weave across the heavens with a kind of unnatural speed and a brilliant display of northern lights. Wave after wave of reds and greens rose and fell. The colors swelled and crested gracefully before sliding off into the horizon. Sharp bolts of white intercepted the waves of color, slithering across the sky like snakes. A thin green ribbon whipped sensuously from one end of the sky to the other. It thickened slowly, and its passion held back no longer, exploded across the sky with a startling sound of a cracking whip, igniting splashes of brilliant light upon the snow-covered wilderness. This was just too stunning. Nope, now was not the time. Numb with cold and too frozen to shiver, I jumped out of the rocking chair and I fell onto my face into the snow. Then I considered briefly lying there forever. But I got to my knees and I crawled to the door. Staggering into the warmth of the cabin, I crawled to the heating stove and on the floor curled up into a ball right next to it. I got up later and reached for the stew that I had forgotten to take off the stove, and collapsing into the only other chair in the room, I wolfed it down, chasing it with some more tequila. I saw what I had to live for. The manuscript was still on the table, just where I had left it. Motherfuck, what was I thinking? And then I remembered that, by Jesus, this was Friday night, a special Friday night, when after the Bush Telegraph, the Fairbanks radio station was to play a network's mystery night of the air. After his chuckle with my misfortune, the announcer had warned that this night the station was going to present a terrifying tale, a most frightening show ever broadcast. 
At that moment, I was perfectly content to be holed up in the cabin waiting for the show and for the rest of my life. After chowing down, I turned low the kerosene lantern and switched on the radio and waited for this night of radio horrors. With uh, that spectacular heavenly light still dancing in my mind's eye and with this shuddering incredulity, incredulity that I had actually considered freezing to death, I slipped into the warmth and safety of my bed, convinced that I was back on an even keel and I would soon return to the outside world with manuscript in hand and to a new life. I watched in fascination the lamplight shadows dance merrily on the walls and I took an occasional nip from the bottle and that kept me company on the bedside table. Something wasn't right. Under the show's standard fright music, I sensed a presence. A presence? Can't be, I was alone. Still, I felt it, something. Someone was outside. Switching down the radio, I held my breath and I listened. I heard nothing, but I felt something, like a cold breath on my neck. I strained to hear. What was I, was I imagining it? I tried to convince myself there was nothing out there. Couldn't be, there never is. And suddenly, a deep guttural snort like a clearing of a throat it broke the silence and that I had come to know so well. This, this sudden unnatural sound, something alive, something outside, turned me to stone. I didn't breathe. I couldn't move. I wasn't alone. A powerful rasping against the outside of the cabin, like that of a crosscut sawing a two-by-four, vibrated through the walls. Now a stronger, more determined clawing against the southwest corner. The Campbell cabin trembled with a violent uh, ripping tear running down from the eaves to the ground, over and over at the same spot in the corner there, so immediate, so near, so clear, that I can imagine it was already inside the cabin. This clawing, this, this, this ripping of the, the wood outside, I searched uselessly through the flickering light, close to panic, close to panic, and yeah, you can see that uh, just uh, thinking and talking about it uh, still uh, it gets is a little nerve-wracking. But uh, I was looking for an escape, nowhere to run, and there was nowhere to hide. Then only silence, the sound of my own startled, frightened, quick breaths. Then nothing at all. I felt physically sick. Fear was rushing through my body. It was actually swelling my face. The sinister quiet from the outside was preternatural, labored and filled with danger. I was out there. I was, I was listening for me. There was little doubt. It was a bear, probably an Alaskan brown bear aroused out of his torpor by hunger. It had smelled my dinner and when I was outside, it probably smelled me, and I think it wanted a bite. It had to be more than six feet tall, and a bear that big weighed more than a thousand pounds. It was intelligent enough to want to get inside. And a hungry bear aroused could not be stopped, and he gets whatever he wants. So like a child, I realized I had slipped further under the covers as I 
as if the blankets could save me. And then I remembered the gun. It was right next to me. I bolted upright and pulled on my thermal vest and propped prop myself up on the pillows against the headboard and grabbed the shotgun and clutched it in my lap. I tried to uh, cock the gun quietly, <laughs> as if I didn't want the bear to know. My hands were shaking, and in the warmth of the cabin, uh, the gun metal was as cold as uh, the fear that I was feeling. Claws again raked the walls and broke the silence. The bear was determined to get inside. Against the corner over there, and here on this side, and then back on the other side, it was roaming back and forth through the snow, looking for a soft spot in the cabin to break in. I can feel the slumbering beast, its footfalls, its weight as it moves furiously from one end to the cabin to the other, growling and clawing. I can imagine the bear rearing up on its hind legs, sniffing, searching for a more intense, intense smell, the weakness in the walls. Then I thought, my God, the door. The double-timbered door was the soft spot. A strong boot could kick it in. Suddenly, an explosive strike against the walls outside. A swat with a giant paw or a headbutt. I didn't know what it was, but it was strong enough to shake the cabin. Again and again, chinking of dried mud, moss, and fiberglass batting fell out onto the floor. The angry uh, strikes came, became more animate, more powerfully animate a sound that demanded to come inside. The bear had his scent, and he knew what he wanted and where to get it. If he was a little smarter, he could just charge the cabin and reduce it to kindling. A heavy silence followed, and it was terrifying. I had hoped maybe he'd given up. Maybe he was gone. There was nothing to hear, only crackling embers of the dying fire and the sound of my heart pounding and the ringing my, in my ears while I prayed that the bear had lost interest and wandered away. And I began to nod off. A thunderous, angry war, a sound that I would hear to the end of my days. Is this it? The bear slammed an area behind me. The cabin shuddered. The bed shook, and termite dust fell onto the from the ceiling. Could the cabin withstand Another shock? Could he withstand the, the attack? I imagine the bear looming over the small cabin in the woods so big that one well-aimed swipe would knock it off its foundation. Oh shit, the, the dirty plate by the fire. I forgot to put, the, put it in the wash bucket. I was never so careless. It must have been the tequila and I had just come in from the cold. The bear began to work on one area, a terrifying personal sound, the occasional growl and the grating ratchet corduroy noise as its claws methodically ripped chunks out of the wall. Its frustration, its determination to break in became the animal itself. I felt those needle-sharp claws sink into my flesh. Quiet now, a long quiet. Did I hear its breathing? He's waiting out there. I smell him, a strong lanolin smell like the odor of a wet dog. Or was I smelling me, my fear, my puckered sphincter, my clenched balls, my cold sweat, 
I waited, my finger welded to the trigger. I waited for the explosion of splintered wood and for the bear to burst inside. I woke some hours later with a start, wide-eyed. Was it a nightmare? My head had fallen onto my chest, the gun was still in my lap, and my finger was still on the trigger. All I could hear was absolutely nothing at all. It took me two days to open the door and to go outside to the outhouse. If you've enjoyed this tale from the edge, subscribe and like and share. And thank you for listening.